to James chapter 2. We're going to be in the first 13 verses. If you remember the first chapter, we summed up in three different messages. We talked about uh, the trials of life. We talked about the temptations of life. And we talked last week about being not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And so now we're moving into a whole other section. And we're going to break up chapter 2 in uh, two different messages. But these first 13 verses are talking about the problem with plain favorites. Now, uh, most of you probably come in here tonight and you're not thinking a lot about favoritism. I don't know if this was a topic for you today. It's not for most of us, but it is a big deal and it's a very practical thing in the church. Matter of fact, we love playing favorites. How many of y'all like KU? Anybody like the University of Kansas? Okay, well, we're going to have a special time of uh, prayer and repentance for you later on. You got the K-State shirt and you're raising your hand about the KU. How about K-State? Anybody like K-State? A few of you, not even the guy with the shirt on. <laughs> See, we um, know at an early age, if you grow up in the state, right, you're going to pick sides, you're going to pick teams, you're going to pick favorites. Maybe uh, you've got a favorite place you love to go in your own house, your own home, uh, the city. You like to go and just have some quiet time or, or even on vacation. You've got different favorites, uh, restaurants. We've got all kinds of different opinions on what the best restaurant in town might be. Matter of fact, even uh, parts of our day, when we, at the end of the day, talk to our son Silas about what he did each day and want him to get used to sharing and communicating what has been happening, we'll ask him this question, what was your favorite part? You ever ask your kids that? What was your favorite part of the day? And so we find ourselves asking about favorites all the time. Sometimes it seems so common that it doesn't seem like a bad thing. Problem is, when it comes to people, our preferences uh, can easily lead to prejudice. And so we call it favoritism, but what we're really saying is discrimination. We're talking about um, uh, an issue of value and equality here, and that's what James is going to dig into. Now, if you remember the context, we are talking about a group of believers who grew up Jewish, some of them poor, some of them rich, and you're going to hear a lot about poor and rich even tonight, but all throughout the book of James, and they were scattered. Acts chapter 8 says persecution came upon them. These are people who grew up Jewish, but they had placed their faith in Jesus, and now they're scattered outside of Jerusalem, some maybe for the first time in their lives. And so James, being a leader in the church in Jerusalem, is writing to his own people in Jerusalem, but also this letter to circulate throughout um, the whole region so that the believers who had been scattered can hear this and be encouraged. And so for them, they're setting up a new community. Many of these people had left their local synagogue, they'd left their job, their families, and they're out and about, out there um, facing trials and temptations and persecutions. And he's saying, your faith's got to be real. That's what we talked about last week. And now he's talking about, if you're setting up a new community, what does that look like? Who would you hang out with? Let me ask you, who would you hang out with? Who would you gravitate towards if you came to a whole new city, if you went to a new school, new job, new church? Who would you want to hang out with? Who would you choose to do life with? Who would be on that list for you? Would they be poor people, rich people, in-between people? Would they have the same skin color as you, Uh, same gender, opposite gender? Some of us, we know we would gravitate towards people who are probably, let's be honest, just like us. Isn't that how it goes? We tend to have a heart of favoritism, and we don't even often know it, right? We go to places that make us feel the most comfortable. And so even a few weeks ago, I saw this in our own congregation. you got to be careful about this. Um, a friend of mine, a good dude, uh, was asking me after the sermon. I don't know if you remember, uh, and I forget which message it was specifically, but Andy had mentioned something about 
um, not taking political stances. You remember that one where he said he was careful not to take political stances? And of course, just mentioning that and not even taking a stance on a stance, just saying I'm not taking a stance um, doesn't mean he didn't believe things. But, you know, just him mentioning that from stage, people are going to be like, well, what does that mean? You know, are we not as conservative as we thought we are? We know there's all going to be all kinds of thoughts. And so one of my friends came up to me afterwards and said, man, I, I just have a hard time with what Andy said. And I said, oh, okay, what would you struggle with? Well, just like not taking stances, you know, the Bible tells us, I was like, we take all the stances, like all the biblical things that you think as a conservative are, are good. Like we're taking those stances. We're just not saying, well, let's just talk Republican, Democrat. Uh, we're just teaching the word of God because it's the word of God, right? And hopefully you end up on the right side of that. And he said, no, no, that's not my problem. And so I said, okay, well, what is? And he explained a little more. And, and I said, well, you know, as a missionary, you got to think, and we're here to preach the gospel and to reach people. And we know that people in this congregation all across the state of Kansas, people are going to have different views. And he said, yeah, that's not my problem. I said, well, what, what's the struggle then? And he said, I just can't believe that anyone who would be liberal would even like be around us, like would be in the church. Like, none of them ever go to church. And it, certainly they wouldn't come to Crosspoint. And for a second, I was like, I was kind of caught off guard. I was like, what, what is he saying? Like, what does that mean? And I thought about it, and I thought, man, there's a bit of that, like, yeah, the majority, the vast majority of people are going to be conservative. In a conservative, in a theologically conservative place, they're going to be politically conservative, right? But, like, if we're a healthy church reaching the lost, I would hope we got some people who don't just think like us and act like us. Now, as they come to know Christ, are our views going to be united in the gospel? I would sure hope so. But man, even as a church, we got to be careful that we don't just become a holy huddle of people exactly like us and think that we're healthy when in reality, Jesus came for the sick. He came for those who obviously need him. And if we're not reaching those, and those are going to have different views than us. They're going to live differently, act differently, think differently. But if we're scared to even engage in that conversation, engage with those people, who are we going to reach? We're going to find ourselves as believers in the corner of culture so minimalized that the rest of the world don't see us as any kind of threat to them, to, to their way of life. Like they're going to think, and oh, Christianity, that's, that's an old thing. That's not anymore. And believers just hang out by themselves. Like we are called to go out and to make disciples. And so you're going to find all throughout tonight that favoritism might not have been a big deal when you came in, but the reality is we all struggle with it. We all want to be around people just like us, and we often judge others in our hearts. And so James is going to address this. We're going to walk through these 13 verses and we're going to uh, then stop and talk about five different problems with favoritism. So let's jump on in. If you've got a Bible, James chapter one, excuse me, James chapter two, verse one says, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? So there's the issue right out of the gate. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by, me by evil motives? Verse 5, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed. It is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. All right, let's walk through this five problems with favoritism. Going back to verse one. First thing we see is the problem is that we're not God. It's actually a good thing when it comes to favoritism. We're not God, so we can't judge in the same way that he does. Now, keep in mind, when we talk about judging, the Bible tells us do not judge, but it also tells us judge for yourselves. There's a whole book of the Bible called Judges. So we do judge, and we don't judge, and there's a heart issue that divides the two. We can judge correctly. There's judgment calls you've got to make all day long in regards to things, people, places, all of it. But there's a godly way to do it, an unbiased way to do it, And then there's an unhealthy, worldly way to do it. And so he starts talking in verse 1. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, right off the bat, remember who James is. Who's his half-brother? Jesus. So like this dude is up here, and he's looking at the rest of the people, those scattered, poor and rich. And he says, you're my brothers and sisters in the faith. Like he could be like, hey, my servants. Hey, my, 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 you know, neighbors, my whatever. Like he calls them family. You don't call people family unless you feel like they're family. And so he's saying we're we're equal right off the bat here. How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ? So he's saying, how can you claim to have faith? Like right off the bat, how can you even think that you can follow Jesus? The very nature of the gospel is that God in his great inequality, meaning he's amazing and we're not so amazing, sent his son to come down to earth and to become like one of us and even died for us. He didn't deserve sin, uh, the punishment of sin. We as sinners deserve the punishment for sin. We deserve death and he took it. He said, don't you even understand like this whole kingdom, the spiritual kingdom called the kingdom of God, it's flipped upside down. The first will be last, the last shall be first. Like, don't you know, like, how can you think by following Jesus that you can be valuing some people over others, mistreating some while exalting others? How can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, if you favor some people over others? Some of your translations don't just say glorious Lord, Jesus Christ, but say the Lord of glory. And this is this is the big idea is recognizing that there is a distinction But the distinction isn't between me and you. It's not human to human. It's God and human. It's the creator and creation. And so this is the distinction that gives us perspective and humbles us, right? It humbles us because of what I just said, that he came down and he became one of us and he died for us. It gives us perspective that, and this is silly, that we would be judging one another, that we, in awe of God's holiness and aware of our sin, should be like on our faces day and night in repentance and confession, just heartbroken over what we have done in the sight of God. And yet we're sitting here judging each other. We're sitting here picking favorites. I'm saying, this is silly. This is silly. You see, that's ultimately the core of favoritism. 
in your life and my life, it's setting up our own kingdom. It's me and you walking into the culture and saying, hey, uh, I'm going to choose who I want to be more valuable than other people. I'm, I'm going to determine their worth in my life, in my mind. Uh, I'm going to uh, exalt some people that shouldn't be exalted. And I'm going to oppress other people who shouldn't be oppressed. And I'm going to be the king. And I'm going to be the judge. And, and he's saying, don't you understand in the kingdom of God there's one king, and his name is Jesus, and we're all the servants. And so favoritism is when you come and say, I'm going to keep building my kingdom where I'm the king and everyone else serves my purposes. They do what I want. I'm going to tell them who they are. Matter of fact, everything we would do in building our own kingdom is what Jesus does in building his kingdom. And what James is saying, the world does this, <laughs> but believers live in the kingdom of God. Completely opposite. Completely opposite. It's almost silly to think that we judge each other in the ways that we do, but we do. Of course, Silas, being five years old, he's got his own little world. If you've got little kids, you know they have a world of their own, and he's got these stuffed animals. I probably mentioned them a time or two. He's got a bunch of them, and he's got like this little tiny giraffe he calls Twiggy. Uh, he loves Twiggy. He's got uh, a little monkey he calls Coco. He's got this, this, this little dog, face is like this big, and his body's like this big. He calls him Chub Dog. He loves Chub Dog. He's got this little um, fluffy heart he got for Valentine's Day, and he calls calls her Hardy. He knows which ones are boys, which ones are girls, and he um, calls Hardy. He has a nickname for Hardy. He has a nickname for the nickname. He calls her Hardy and Babump. That's what hearts do, right? He says, hey, "Give me Babump." And every day he'll do the same thing. Before bed, he has them all in this box. And he'll open the box, and he'll pick whatever his favorite is for that day. And that's who he sleeps with. And it's kind of a, a goofy thing, but last night he said, Dad, why do I do that? Why do I just pick one instead of just have all of them with me? And I said, I don't know, buddy. That's your choice. And, and in the same awe that he had in asking his father, like, why do I do that? God looks at us and says, like, this is just as goofy that we put people in a box, and we decide each day, no matter how, or depending on how we're feeling or what we want from them or what we're lacking inside, to, to pick who we want to be our favorites and who we want to be the opposite. And God the Father is saying, this is silly. This is goofy. Don't you understand Jesus is on the throne and we're all equally his servants if we choose to be? We're not God. Second thing. We see in verses 2 through 4 is the problem. The problem with favoritism is evil. The problem with favoritism is that it's evil. I butchered that one, boy. I tried. That's what happens when you try to get it all on one line. For example, suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. Okay, so two people enter into the church. So it's Sunday, we're going to worship, right? It's Saturday for them, they're in the synagogues, whatever the case might be, and two people come in. One stinks, and they don't have nice clothes, they probably don't have a job, they might be homeless. People aren't going to want to talk to them, people aren't going to want to sit around them. The other one comes in, and they look like they got life going on. They're like, they got it together. They got nice clothes. They got money. They can take you somewhere. You might want to get to know them. What happens when these two come in? How do you and your heart respond? It says, if you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, 
you can stand over there or else sit on the floor. Well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? So that's the second issue. The problem with favoritism is it's evil. It's evil. They're guided by evil motives. Now, you might not think this is like a a, a real deal, but um, I heard uh, a pastor talk about going down to Florida. This was just a few years ago, and a friend of his was Jewish and asked him if he could take him to a synagogue. said, I got a really nice synagogue. I want to take you there. And so he said, okay, I don't typically do that, but whatever, we'll go take a look. And he took him in this very affluent neighborhood, beautiful synagogue, and he walked in and he said, this place was just amazing. It was awesome. It was just uh, unlike any building that he had been in, and certainly a church. And they walked to the front, and his friend said, these are our seats. And the guy said, like, all the time? <laughs> like, you get them all the time? This is, he said, yeah, this is where we sit. He said, how do, you, how do you get them, like, all the time? You just mean this metaphorically, like, this is where you like to sit? He said, no, we bought them. He said, what are you talking about? He said, well, we don't go to the synagogue very often, but in the high holy days, this place is packed. And so over the years, we've purchased these seats so that we always have a place during the holy days to come and sit. And so you can imagine, like, if that's happening in Florida, in, you know, 2,000 years later, what's going on back then where they've got people who, who come in and they say, okay, we're going to give preferential treatment. Those who are wealthy, you get to sit wherever you want, right? We're going to make budget this year, and we need you to know that we value you. And then other people, like, no, we're going to have you actually sit on the floor. If you want to be here, you can just go over there. And James knows that we're human. He knows that our hearts are broken. He knows this is how we function. He's like, how can you have this theological truth about Jesus coming down and dying for your sins? And you who deserve death have life in Christ, like eternal life, the riches of Jesus. And this is the way that you live. But he said that, you know, because of these things, like your judgments are guided by evil motives. Now, how are they evil? Let's talk about that for a second. There's a few different ways they're evil. Number one, our favoritism is evil because ultimately it's for selfish gain. Selfish gain. Favoritism has a couple um, couple brothers, people pleasers and approval junkies. And they all have the same father of lies, the one that tells them your identity is in what people think about you. Your identity in is, is what you want and how you value other people. You get to choose it. And ultimately... Um, favoritism is a very insecure action. I mean, think about the nature of it. It's you and I using other people, placing the proper value on them that God doesn't say is proper, but we in our minds determine, we judge, like, okay, if, if a rich person comes into a church service, why would I give them preferential treatment? Because I get something out of it. Maybe, maybe I could be known by them, or one day I could be like them. Maybe I'll, I'll have a whole new crowd. I'll have a different lifestyle. Like it's all selfish. And gain. if this person who seems to be somebody says good things about me, then I'll know I am somebody. And why would we reject the poor person? Because they don't have anything to offer us. You see, favoritism at its core is an identity crisis. It's a struggle for those of us who don't find our identity in Jesus, but in what other people think and what other people say. So now, favoritism is a big deal. 
not just I like this restaurant compared to that. It's who am I allowing to tell me who I am? And when our identity is in Christ, we don't feel like we have to exalt some and push others down to find out who we are. We can just let God, who created us, tell us who we are and treat everybody equally. Second reason that it's evil is because it causes division. Think about a church service. You got some people coming in and you say, you know what? You guys get preferential treatment over there. You guys get oppressed. Go sit over there. And right off the bat, you've got division. You've got two visions in the church. God's saying, my vision is that all people from all nations, all genders, all races would come and worship me. We're going to be doing that in heaven, so shouldn't it look like that on earth? And if we, through favoritism, through discrimination, say, we're going to have some people worship you here, and we're going to give them preference, and others, eh, hopefully they can worship you in the closet. We're going to push them back. He's saying, that's not the way... I want my church run. That's, that's not how Jesus leads his church. You got division. What did Jesus say about a house divided? It'll fall. And don't you know this about the church? You might think that you're, like, you might see a rich person come in and think, oh, this is going to help us. Like, you got a bunch of rich people. You can pay for stuff, programs, ministries. You can have more leaders. And he's saying, yeah, but you are slapping the kingdom of God in the face. And this is the antithesis of what it means to follow Jesus doesn't work that way. You can't, can't set up a country club and call it church. And the third reason, and this might be the easiest but most difficult <laughs> to explain, both of them at once, is that it's just contrary to God's ways, right? Um, we explained how Jesus has come down from heaven, left his throne and his riches. And so if God simply says, don't do this, then we as his followers say, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't do that. Some, he rejects favoritism. Verses 5 through 7. says, Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Third thing we see, the third problem with favoritism is that perception isn't always reality. That perception isn't always reality. So he says, listen to me, dear brothers and sisters, again, equality. Hasn't God chosen the poor to poor in this world to be rich in faith? Remember the Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount? What does Jesus say? Actually, I'll say this, two passages, if you want to do some further Bible study, that you'll see connected to James chapter 2, Matthew or chapters 5 and 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, you'll see several of the themes echoed there, and then Leviticus 19. We'll see that a little bit later, but uh, if you want to scribble those down and study them, you'll see James um, quoting or referencing both of those a good chunk. But he says that, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for what is theirs? Kingdom of God. That's what Jesus says, and James is echoing that. He says, hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? So first thing we see here when it comes to perception not being reality is that God loves all people. Shocker. I know you guys are probably learning a lot right now. But God loves all people. He doesn't get impressed by outward appearances. We know scripture says he doesn't judge by outward appearance. He judges by the heart. God won't be mocked. He won't be fooled. He won't be tricked. Whether you come with nothing on your back or 
You're as rich as can be. God knows. He knows who you are. He knows your heart. And so God's not swayed like men and women are. Thank God for that. But he's got a plan. And you've got to understand, this isn't, just, this isn't just an issue that you and I struggle with. Like, there's entire theologies built around the rich and poor and how we view them, right? So there's one, uh, maybe you've heard of it, called the prosperity gospel or prosperity theology, where it says that being poor is bad, but rich is good. So these are the late night televangelists, right? Those people that you see talking about sowing a seed of faith and you get your prayer hanky or whatever uh, in the mail in six weeks if you give them a thousand bucks or whatever. And you're like, gosh, that feels weird. And the big idea is that, that being poor on earth can't be good, only being riches. So we want you to build up your wealth. We want you to build up things. So you, you got to be perfectly healthy. You got to have lots of money. You got to have good standing on earth. It's a short sighted, broken, heretical theology. The flip side is, you got to understand this one too, is the poverty theology or the poverty gospel, which says we're like Robin Hood. Rich people are bad, but the poor people are good. And there's even in the evangelical world, uh, lots of people, solid people, who have to be cautious not to err on the side. It feels so noble, doesn't it? To say, yeah, if we're all just poor, surely God will love us. That'll be amazing, right? Like that's holy in and of itself. Poverty is not holy in and of itself. Scripture says that poor people have advantages over rich in the kingdom and that the rich have so much stuff stopping them from seeing their need of God, whereas poor people lack that stuff and might have a better chance of realizing they need not just stuff, they need God. So you could argue that poor might have an inherent advantage spiritually, but there's no holiness attributed to one or the other. And what James is saying is, don't you understand? God has given poor people what he's given anyone else the opportunity for. They're going to inherit the kingdom of God. They're going to be rich in faith. This is a good thing. The second thing you see in the latter half is that ultimately... The physical reality doesn't always reflect the spiritual. So now he talks about the rich. He says, but you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? This was a common thing for the Jews is that those who had money would often sue those who didn't and knew that they weren't even going to be able to show up to court. They, they could get their way, whether it be with criminal stuff, other legal things. They could take advantage of the poor. No one like, man, you can't do anything. What are you going to do? Hire a lawyer? You ain't got no money. So they could have their way. And aren't the rich, aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ? How many people do you know in authority or with wealth who think they can get away with whatever they want? And those are the ones who slander the name of Jesus, and yet no one calls them out like they might other people. And God's saying, I see it. I see it. I'm not impressed by their riches. I don't care how much money they have. They're going to die one day. Their money will be gone. It will be scattered. Their house will be abandoned. One day, it's going to be in the ground. Their cars will be rusted out. It won't be drivable. We're talking within 50 years. Every car that every person owns in this room, is we're going to be in a junkyard, probably crunched in, in if it's able to be scrapped. <laughs> probably not because it's plastic, but some metal. We'll see. James is saying, don't you understand? That the physical reality isn't always the spiritual. They don't go hand in hand. So you see someone who seems rich on earth, and they're not necessarily rich spiritually. 
Holiness is a heart issue. You ever been duped by someone? Someone that you thought, whether they had a position or uh, of authority or they, they had wealth or someone that you just saw by outward appearance, like, man, they're probably solid dudes, guys or gals. You're like, I, I feel like I could trust them, right? You ever been there and then found out later that you couldn't trust them at all? What does that do to you? Not just create trust issues, but it makes you think, man, I'm not a good judge, obviously, of people. I remember when I was in high school, it was at the beginning of the resource cop era. You remember that? Where all throughout even the little schools in Kansas, they were putting resource officers, these police officers who would go into high schools and whatnot and hang out. And we, being in a 1A school, um, you know, had a resource officer uh, when I was a freshman, sophomore, all the way through high school. But for like three years, he didn't, he didn't do anything. We didn't have any crime. We didn't have any issues. And so he basically wandered the halls, and people were like, yeah, gosh, there, there's that cop again, and what do we do with him? Like, no one wants to get too close to him, but you don't want to be on his bad side either. But, like, he, he, he just kind of greeted you. He's a real friendly guy. He's a nice guy. But he didn't do anything. And we knew that even in those early years, there was talks about funding being cut. Like, is it worth it to have them? And I think they knew as well. Like, and in this case, he's not up there. There's no resource officer up there anymore so it was a matter of time well long story short come my senior year i get in trouble right get in this big fight this is his time to spring into action so i get arrested and it's the middle of the school day in february and he takes me to jail but we got a 30 minute or 30 mile drive to get to manhattan right so we got plenty of time to talk now he never read my miranda rights any of that i was uh, naive and a little bit ignorant and I, at that point, was obviously very vulnerable. I just committed this heinous crime. And I'm thinking, like, did I kill the kid? I mean, he was bleeding profusely. And I was thinking to myself, this is terrible. I was in an incredibly vulnerable state. So for 30, 35 minutes, I'm in the back of this police car. And he's being the same kind dude that he had been the whole time. I'd known him for four years. And he starts talking to me. And I start talking to him. I start pouring out my heart like, man, what did I do? I can't believe I did this. And, and I'm looking for, like, someone to just listen. And he did. He did listen. He booked me. And months later, I found myself at the very first hearing. And I walked into the courthouse, and I was surprised to see him. And one of the first things they did when they read the charges was they read a big, long statement, huge statement where almost verbatim, he read off every single thing I said. Now, without that, it was an open and shut case. Like, there was no two ways about it. Everyone and their dog knew I was guilty. I didn't have a hope. But I remember thinking, on one hand, and I still feel this way, he did his job. Like, noble thing. Listen, and it can be held against you in the court of law. Now, I wish he would have told me that as a young teenager, but it's my fault. I could have known better. But on one hand, he did his job. On the other hand, I'll tell you what, that ticked me off. There was a break in trust. At any point in that 30-plus minute conversation, he could have stopped me and said, hey, just so you know, i got to write this down and use it against you. Like, it, it could be used against you. But he let me talk. He let me talk. He let me talk. I felt like he used me. This was his big break. What James is saying, don't you understand some people aren't who you think they are? So when you see rich people come through the doors, 
Don't treat them like they're something amazing. They might be wicked inside. Only God knows their hearts. And our job isn't to judge by outward appearance what we think their heart might be like. We just love people. We just love them. That's our job. Verses 8 through 11. Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. This is that Leviticus 19 reference I mentioned on top of Matthew and others. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. For the same God who said you must not commit adultery also said you must not murder. So if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. Fourth thing we see, the fourth problem with favoritism is that it's a snare for sin. So he calls it a sin, so we know it's a sin, but it's also a snare. It entangles you, because oftentimes we don't think that it's a sin, but he's calling it out for what it is. Here's what James is saying. This is a bigger deal than you think. This is a huge deal. He says, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal law as found in Scripture. So what's the royal law? Well, he just answers it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is what is happening. If you want proof that you and I struggle with favoritism, look at how we view the Bible. We rank sins according to what we think are bad compared to what aren't so bad. And he's saying, no, it's all bad. It's all sin. You're going to have the same issues with all of it. Condemnation. One is as good as or as bad as 100. It's all the same. But the Pharisees, they would do this with their 613 laws that they'd found in, in the Old Testament. They would take them and they would spend their time. This is what Jesus w- was um, rebuking them for often on earth, is they would spend their time arguing about these different laws. So what happens one day when a lawyer says, hey, which one is the most important? He says, all of the law can be summed up as this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. So he's saying the royal law is love your neighbor as yourself. So don't play favorites. You're not playing favorites in your own life, right? You're like, I love one part of my body better than the other part of my body. Love your neighbor in the same way equally. Just love them. And so they're ranking God's law, and he, he is telling them the law we got back in Leviticus 19 and that Jesus reiterates in Matthew. Saying, just love them as yourself. Don't play favorites. Interestingly enough, when you go back to Leviticus 19, this is Leviticus 19, verse 18, uh, the royal law here, but three verses earlier in verse 15, Leviticus 19, 15, it says, don't play favorites. <laughs> don't show partiality. Don't play favorites. So they go hand in hand. James is reiterating, reiterating all of this. Then he goes on to say, you break one, you've broken all. If I told you there's a crack in here, how many cracks would this need for it to be broken? One. How many cracks would it need for anything good in here to leak out? There's one. He's saying that's the righteousness in your own heart. Once you've sinned once and we're all born into sin, you've lost all righteousness. You stand guilty before God. But then he brings up adultery and murder. Now, this is interesting because they feel unrelated, don't they? It's like, what does favoritism have to do with these? Like, these seem like huge deals, right? Again, don't rank God's law in your heart. But he says, if you've committed adultery, 
or if you, so if you murder someone but do not commit adultery, you've still broken the law. Think about even the nature of those two crimes. Isn't favoritism at the heart? If you murder someone, what you're saying is, I don't value their life as much as mine. Like, I'm going to degrade them. Their value might be here. I'm saying it's here. They should be dead. If you commit adultery, isn't that still favoritism? I have a spouse that used to be my favorite, but now I want someone else. I want somebody else. So you're ranking their value and desirability in your own heart. Even these sins we see as egregious have the core issue of favoritism at their heart. It's a snare for sin. Last but not least, verses 12 and 13. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. All right. Last thing we see, number five, the fifth problem is that we reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. Obviously a principle all throughout scripture, but this should be a little bit scary. It says, whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you're going to be judged by that same thing. But then he says, and some of your translations will say it a little bit differently, by the law that sets you free. So the laws of God are primarily under a law in the Old Testament we call the law of Moses, the Mosaic law, right? That's the Ten Commandments and all these other 613 that we talk about. That's the law that lets us know we've broken God's law. Like we are sinners before God. For 1,500 years, they had these laws, and the Israelite people, as Paul says, were under these laws knowing they could never fulfill every law perfectly. But the point of the law was to show God's holiness and to remind us that we can't measure up. We need someone. So then when the Messiah came 2,000 years ago, they're like, this is amazing. He fulfilled the law. He is the one who can do it all, and he sets us free. Now we're under the law of Christ. We're not under the Mosaic law, even though it condemns every human because we know we fall short of God. We don't have to fulfill it. Jesus has fulfilled it. doesn't mean we abuse grace, but it means we remember, like, we're under the law of Christ now, where grace and mercy reign. But still, you're held accountable for what you do and what you say. You don't just do whatever you want. It's good news that the gospel sets us free. And so even if you struggle, or I struggle with favoritism, if we judge each other, this passage is saying there's really good news. But there's also some bad news. The good news is that religion says you get what you earn. Karma. But Christianity says you get what Jesus earned. Grace. So this is really good news. You're judged by the law that sets you free, the gospel. The not-so-good news, then, is that we're still God's children who will be disciplined by him, and we recognize we're held accountable for the things that we say and do. So we still have to show mercy. And you're going to see the rest of chapter 2 is the famous passage about faith without deeds is dead. So that's what it's ushering into. He's going to say, hey, listen, if you've got faith, then you're going to be doing something. And so one of those things is that you've received mercy from God. It doesn't stop with you. It goes through you, and you're to give it to other people. And God will be merciful when he judges you. Let me ask you guys a question. 
knowing that he was talking to Jewish Christians 2,000 years ago, and that God's word is obviously for all of us. How many of you, and this might sound odd, how many of us in this room are Hebrew by ethnicity, Israelite by nationality, or Jew by religion? Raise your hand. If you're those three things, if you're a Hebrew, an Israelite, a Jew, then you were the one who the Messiah came for. You know that? You know it was the people of God waiting for the Messiah? If we're not, then who are we? If we're not those three things, who are we? The Bible has a word for us. Gentiles. And the Jews had a word for us. Dogs. Remember Matthew 15, faith of the Canaanite woman? We'll wrap it up with this, but it's a good reminder to know what God has done for us. Remember that Jesus was coming to the Jews, and then his ministry sped, spread to the Gentiles. But he came first for the Jews. They were the ones who expected the Messiah. It was for them. It says, Then Jesus left Galilee and went north to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Gentile woman, so that's us, who lived there, came to him pleading, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. So she's a Gentile woman who's not Jewish, but she's saying, Hey, I'm going to refer to the son of David. She's going to speak about Jewish things. He's like, you can't just, that doesn't work. You can't just be like, hey, I know I don't follow you or none of my family ever had, but we're going to pretend like we kind of do by calling you the son of David. For my daughter is possessed by a demon that torments her severely. So she has need. We have need. But Jesus gave her no reply, not even a word. So is he discriminating? Then his disciples urged him to send her away. Let's get rid of her. James wouldn't be happy about this. Tell her to go away, they said. She's bothering us with all her begging. We haven't read James 2 yet. Then Jesus said to the woman, this is when the whole ministry shifts, I was sent only to help God's lost sheep, the people of Israel. But she came and worshipped him, pleading, Lord, help me. So she calls out to him. And Jesus responded, it isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. She replied, that's true, Lord. But even dogs are allowed to eat the scraps that fall beneath the master's table. Dear woman, Jesus said to her, your faith is great. Your request is granted. And her daughter was instantly healed. And Jesus' ministry spread throughout the world. And 2,000 years ago, a group of Gentiles, or 2,000 years later, a group of Gentiles, like the Canaanite woman, know that we got no right to discriminate against anybody. <laughs> We're the dogs. But thank God that even the dogs get scraps that fall from the master's table. That the invitation has been extended even to us. think about who we are to judge it's easy to forget we might live in America we might live in a great nation we're the dogs in this story and yet his grace reaches even to us for those who call out Lord help me 
I know my past, but Lord, I'm calling out to you. He says, your faith has healed you. Christianity is a lot of things, but ultimately, it's a throne, it's a table, and it's a time. It's a throne in that we go from a worldly kingdom, building up our own thrones, sitting on our own thrones, to recognizing Jesus is on the throne. And in Revelation, we're going to be around him, everyone from every nation, gender. There's no Jew, there's no Greek, there's no male, there's no female. There's just people who worship Jesus, who recognize he is on the throne. That's why the world wants equality, but the world tries to find equality in ourselves. And as long as there's sinful human beings apart from God, hating God, there will be inequality because we are selfish people with selfish gain and we use each other. But people who see Jesus on the throne and say, let's just worship him because he is amazing and we are unequal to him, then we can equally do that together. There's a table where Revelation speaks of the wedding feast, the church and Jesus, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And there's an invitation. All of us get to come, the dogs and the Jews. And there's a time when one day we're going to be in heaven where he's going to come here first, and the lion will lay with the lamb, and there won't be discrimination like we see. Discrimination's a hot topic in America now. It was 40 years ago. It was 100 years ago. It was hundreds of years ago. It's been that way since the beginning of time. But there's a throne, and he's on it. There's a table, and we're invited to it. And there's a time when it'll just be us and him, and we won't have to worry about what we can get from each other or how to use each other. We'll just be secure in who we are with the king. If we focus on the king, discrimination ends. Because that's in our hearts. Let's pray together. And then after we pray, I want to do something as we leave. I want to um, give you guys a chance to pray for each other. And we're just going to split up into groups of three or four. And if you don't want to pray, uh, I would love for you to come to me. I'd pray for you. And um, I invite you to that. But for those of you who want to pray together, I'm just going to ask you to ask each other, what's one thing you can pray for? And just spend a moment, just just lift each other up. Um, again, if you don't want to pray, come to me. I'd love to spend some time just praying for you. But let's pray together.